Today I wanted to tell you about our new organization. It is a 501c3 nonprofit organization in Southern California. It's called the Autoimmune Community Institute. We're dedicated to health equity in autoimmune disease research, policy, and support for the communities of color, the underrepresented communities out there that don't often see themselves in disease community events, for example, and they don't see their face, a face like theirs, in their community. And we are dedicated to community-based participatory research. We're dedicated to serving the community, for example, cooling programs and also delivery services during the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, the immunocompromised community not being able to go out into public spaces due to disability or immunocompromised status from disease-modifying drugs. And we provide delivery services of essential goods, food, masks, protective gear, hand sanitizer, and so on to these communities. So please consider a donation to the Autoimmune Community Institute. You can find us at ACI, as in Autoimmune Community Institute, acicommunity.org. Welcome to COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, presenting information from various sources about the COVID-19 pandemic from public health policy and cultural perspectives. We will be sharing international accounts from policy, public health response, and even personal experiences firsthand about living in this era of COVID-19. Welcome to this episode of COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno, and we are here in the second episode for September 2020. We're currently at two episodes per month, and this is our second episode of the month where we talk about the kind of news roundup and updates in public health, culture, in the news, and also in academic journals. So today, we're going to be talking about a few things. We're going to start with talking about what's going on across the different parts of the country. And the newest news here is about the state of Florida. So this is pretty interesting here as we look at Florida and the governor lifting restrictions so that all restaurants can be open without any restrictions. And they also banned mask fines. Meanwhile, COVID-19 continues to spread in Florida and the number of people who have passed away are at high numbers as well. So in terms of numbers, Florida has over 700,000 people who have been infected and nearly 14,000 people in Florida have passed away. And we have seen 120 new virus deaths since March 1st. And this is from PBS. So it's really interesting times because as the virus continues to spread, they decided to go ahead and release, like just allow everyone back to full capacity in the restaurants. Yeah, interesting times. And then in New York, what's going on there is that they recorded more than a thousand new cases in a single day recently. This was on September 26th, and this is coming from NBC News. So out of nearly 10,000, sorry, out of nearly 100,000 coronavirus tests in New York, 1,005 came back positive. Um, over the last two weeks. That's 1% of total tests. The last time that they had this type of number 
was back on June 5th. So the numbers are kind of going back up at the moment as people have been talking about a second phase of the pandemic that we need to look out for. And then the next thing I wanted to talk about today is this concept and this phenomenon of the mask shaming. I have a lot of opinions about this because of the fact that I have a public health background and really feel the severity and the the weight of this pandemic as someone with an autoimmune condition as well. I've had this conversation with people in the autoimmune space recently, and we were just like, for the most part, we were saying how it doesn't really matter to us what other people are doing until we see it. So once we're out in the car, out in the street, in the neighborhood, and we see people walking around with with the mask or without the mask, it just starts to irritate. Like it just like grinds my gears when I don't see someone with a mask on. You know, it's just my immediate sense to judgment. I'm in a car and I'm saying, oh, that person's wearing the mask, good for them. I love this neighborhood, they're wearing their mask. They're really smart. They're really, you know, looking out for people. And then I'll go into another neighborhood where people are having conversations, doing everything without the mask. And then I'm just like, oh, you know, that just irritates me so much. And I just find myself in some way, like really judging people just out of instinct, looking at them, oh, they're wearing the mask. Oh, they're not wearing the mask over there. And I'm trying to stop that. I'm trying to just stop that uh, as a personal mission, just because I don't know how useful it is. I think it's hurtful to me to see and affect, be affected by it and have these feelings. And then also the fact that we can't change people's minds. Like, At this point, the coronavirus is not as novel with regard to protection. It's not as novel as it used to be. And the guidelines are pretty clear. I mean, there's still some gray areas as it relates to being outdoors and what to do in a restaurant. There's a lot of gray area. Um, There's places where there's no restriction being outdoors. Like you can walk around without a mask. And then there's even like these well-known researchers who are saying that it's safe to be outside without a mask. Even someone from Health and Human Services on social media was condoning, like supporting this researcher for their excellence and their intelligence with regard to the pandemic, really wasn't concerned about whether people wore a mask outdoors. But then we've already seen enough where people like what the motorcycle festival and rally and things like that, where people you know, in resort areas and crowded spaces can still be infected. So I, I just don't know. There's just so many different opinions. And it's like, at this point, people can choose to believe whatever they want to believe, and they'll find information to support it. And so I'm at this point where it's just like, for my own well-being to, you know, do the research and find the information that's helpful and protects me and my community, and then staying away from those who really believe differently because it's better to for me to be on the side of safety and protection and also protecting my my well-being and mental health as well so that I'm not angered and it's not ruining my day to see people who don't believe in this pandemic to see people who really don't think the mask is necessary people who think it's perfectly safe to gather celebrate and spend time with people. Yeah. So for me, it's just now about trying to reduce the level of judgment that I place as an instinct on other people, on my observations, and then also just staying away, choosing to spend time around people who support and protect people, uh, care to support, 
care to help protect other people from the pandemic and from the spread of this virus. So the next thing I wanted to talk about is some of the good news that's out there in terms of the virus. There's actually good news too. So the first good thing I wanted to talk about that makes me so happy is the COVID sniffing dog. There are COVID sniffing dogs now who are trained, for example, in airports to identify whether a passenger has the virus with 90% accuracy. This is so cool. I love dogs. And basically the dogs are in Finland. They're getting ready to start sniffing at Helsinki airport. And they're going to be delivering these results within 10 seconds. And it's free. This is amazing because of the fact that, as we've heard from past episodes, that some people have trouble accessing getting to a testing site. People can't afford the test. And then when they get the result, it's kind of like too late to even make a difference in terms of reducing the spread of the virus. And so this is really amazing news that with 90% accuracy and within 10 seconds, 10 seconds, these dogs can detect coronavirus, COVID-19 in passengers. So it's already being done through research as well in the United States and the United Arab Emirates as well. So it's not just in one country, it's happening in, in various locations. But they say that the Finnish trial is the largest in scale and possibly the farthest along. In Dubai though, they've already been using the dogs to analyze sweat samples from air travelers with that 90%, more than 90% accuracy. So basically the person gets a swab of their neck and then this is a sweat sample that the dog is able to sniff with such great accuracy. This is so cool. But regardless of whether the person tests positive, they're still being urged to take the standard PCR, polymerase chain reaction coronavirus test, so that researchers can test accuracy of the dog's determination. And it's all free for travelers at this airport in Helsinki. So that is such amazing news that the dogs can do this so accurately, so quickly, and they're doing this for free for passengers. Another item of really good news is that researchers are looking at pre-existing immunity at the moment. And this is really cool. This is from the BMJ Medical Journal, and it's called COVID-19. Do many people have pre-existing immunity? And it's written by their associate editor, Peter Doshi. Basically, it says that there is about a fifth of people who have been found to have antibodies to COVID-19, also known as SARS-CoV-2. 23% of people in New York were found to have antibodies, 18% in London, 11 in Madrid. Among the general population, these numbers are pretty much substantially lower compared to the general population. And there's been various studies that have been noticing that reactive T cells in COVID-19 patients without exposure to the virus are raising questions just about how new this virus really is. At least six studies have reported T cell reactivity against COVID-19 in 20 to 50% of people with no known exposure to the virus. In donor blood specimens way back from 2015 to 2018 in the U.S., 50% displayed various forms of T-cell reactivity when exposed to COVID-19. This is pretty cool stuff. A similar study used specimens from the Netherlands and reported T-cell 
reactivity in two out of 10 people who had never been exposed to the virus. Similarly, they saw the same thing in Germany where reactive T cells were detected in a third of SARS-CoV-2, basically COVID-19, seronegative healthy donors. And then in Singapore, a team analyzed specimens taken from a people from a group of people with no contact or personal history of either SARS or COVID-19. And 20, sorry, 12 out of 26 of those specimens showed reactivity to COVID-19, as did seven out of 10 who were seronegative against the virus. Similarly, they saw the same thing in the UK and Sweden. So this is really interesting news. It's around the world. They're finding this level of pre-existing immunity around the world. An immunologist from the La Jolla Institute for Immunology in California is one of the authors of several studies and says that at this point, there are a number of studies seeing reactivity in different continents, different labs. As a scientist, you know that this is a hallmark of something that has a strong footing. Researchers seem to be confident that they've made solid inroads into ascertaining the origins of immune responses as it relates to COVID-19, according to this article. Some of the T-cell reactivity may also come from other unknown coronaviruses, even of animal origin. The fact that only a minority of people, even in the hardest hit areas of the world, display antibodies against COVID-19 has led most planners to assume that the pandemic is far from over still. Like in New York City, where only a fifth of the people who were surveyed have antibodies, the health department concludes that this remains well below herd immunity thresholds, and we still need to maintain the public health strategies of monitoring, testing, and contact tracing. Whatever that herd immunity threshold is, we're nowhere near it, according to the World Health Organization. There's a really cool box in this article that goes into a little more about what herd immunity looks like, what that calculation looks like. Basically, for the most part, a lot more people would actually have to be infected a lot more people would potentially be dead before this world would see herd immunity actually take place. Memory T cells are known for their ability to affect clinical severity and susceptibility to future infections. T cell studies are suggesting that antibodies are not the full story. Serology testing may not be enough. Maybe there is more immunity that's out there, says someone from the Karolinska Institute. Marcus Bugert. The research offers a powerful reminder that very little in immunology is cut and dried. Here's a short, very short summary lesson on immunology. B cells produce antibodies, but B cells are regulated by T cells. And while T cells and antibodies both respond to viruses in the body, T cells do so on infected cells, while antibodies help prevent cells from being infected. Sunitra Gupta, an Oxford, Oxford University epidemiologist, has some optimism here. She says that she argues that herd immunity thresholds may be greatly reduced if a fraction of the population is actually unable to transmit the virus. So if we're seeing more pre-existing resistance, this is very hopeful news. Maybe we don't have to see this herd immunity threshold may be calculating it to be. The study in Sweden has investigated close family members of patients with confirmed COVID-19 and found T-cell responses in those who were seronegative or asymptomatic. While around 60% of family members produced antibodies, 90% had T-cell responses. So many people got infected and they didn't create antibodies. T-cell studies, they haven't received much attention yet so far. T-cell studies offer potentially a substantially different and more optimistic interpretation of what's going on. This is great news to hear that in a Singapore study, SARS-CoV-1 reactive T-cells were found in SARS patients 17 years after they were infected. 
These findings raise the possibility that long-lasting T cells generated after infection with related viruses may be able to protect against or modify the pathology caused by infection with SARS-CoV-2. COVID-19. T-cell studies can help to shed light on other mysteries of COVID-19, such as why children are not so severely infected, so severely affected, why is it affecting people differently, and why are there so many asymptomatic infections in children and young adults. So there's a lot of optimism in the T-cell and the studies of the T-cell. T-cells could be a key factor in places why New York, London, and Stockholm seem to have experienced a wave of infections and no subsequent resurgence. It could be the result of a combination of pre-existing and newly formed immune responses, possibly preventing an epidemic rise in new infections. But this is still speculation. And then the final sentence is, could pre-existing immunity be more protective than future vaccines? Without studying the question, we won't know. So basically there's still hope in the power of the T cell and so many of us know quite a bit about the T cell, the B cell, how our modifying drugs in the autoimmune community are being impacted um, or impacting these parts of our immune system and our white blood cells. And so that's the update for COVID-19 public health policy and culture. If you're interested in immunology, what the immune system is doing culturally in society, and maybe you're part of the autoimmune community as well, I invite you to join us for the opening celebration of the Autoimmune Community Institute taking place on October 10th. It's gonna be online and you are invited to join us as we celebrate the opening of our nonprofit organization dedicated to health equity in autoimmune research, advocacy, and support. Sign up at acicommunity.org as in Autoimmune Community Institute. So you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about Anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used. And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free. And they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast, either from your phone or your PC or your computer. And then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started. Um, that's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And, uh, yeah, come check out Anchor.fm. you enjoyed this episode if you have any questions any burning questions about COVID-19 feel free to send me a message in anchor anchor.fm slash COVID-19 PPC is our website and until next time stay well and take good care out there